Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode seven of the Day Zero podcast. I'm Spectre, and with me is Z. And Anti may be joining us in about an hour or so. We're not too sure yet, but uh, yeah, hopefully he'll be joining in an hour. Yeah, it's a so, surprise when he joins us. Yeah, it's a it's a pleasant pleasant little surprise. So uh, let's just jump into the first uh, article. So you know, as is uh, per usual on the on the show, we're gonna we're gonna you know talk yeah. about AI. Of course. Yeah, we'll start off, <laughs> jump right into a little AI topic here. I really like yeah. this one because it's similar to one of the topics we had last week, which dealt with a guy kind of wearing like a picture around his waist kind of. And um, I had commented on how, you know, but this is a static picture. So you've got yeah. somebody that, you know, they show off, but, or sorry, they won't be detected as a human, but, you know, by the side, by all these other frames, they would be. Uh, so the cool yeah. thing here, uh, this attack that's being suggested is kind of like a picture or a poster um, or in their actual use case, they use the TV with this image showing. But it's basically an image that you would walk past. Um, and as you're walking past it, it might be tracking you and then it'll start tracking the TV and you can just walk away and it'll have lost tracking on you. Uh, so actually, I'll scroll down a little bit here. Okay. Uh, they actually kind of show it off fairly well towards the end probably should have preloaded this <laughs> why'd they have to make the pdf so many pages just to make our stream slower <laughs> there we go so you'll notice it's showing kind of the human tracking as it goes so uh, you know, left to right and top to bottom on these pictures. Versions just kind of walking by, and as they approach this TV, um, it starts to pick up their image. Instead of being, you know, where they are, it tracks them as part of the TV image. Wow. And then they can just kind of, you know, walk away, and uh, it thinks that they're still on the TV, you know, as they run away in this picture. Uh, and the idea there is, I mean, it's pretty simple. Um they go through a lot of like their thought on how they kind of start creating this. Reminds me a lot of those. Um, I don't remember what they were called, but like the Google AI art, where if it saw something, you'd kind of like just go deeper and uh, kind of place that image there a little bit more. I'm explaining it really poorly. I think it was like Deep Dream maybe or something. I don't remember exactly what it was called. But okay. there's a little bit of training there. I mean, if you look at the actual image that's used, you can kind of see why... They don't have a high res of, I also have some scrolling issues. Uh, they don't have a high res of like the actual image that they've used, or they might in the uh, one of the appendices, but you can notice like it kind of has a human shape, so you can understand why it's maybe making that mistake. You, know, you yeah. can kind of see the two legs there, but I think that's a really cool idea here, especially like the last one I was saying, I don't see it as being too practical yet this i mean it's a tv with an image you can if you can control that you know this could be used if the tracking was a bit more common i don't know how common this type of tracking really is like i can imagine maybe casinos using it casinos maybe like just security cameras in general but yeah like i don't think like it's going to be used anything. in a lot of places yet but still i thought it was kind of neat and it kind of addresses the problem i was seeing with the last one or with last week's one yeah. Uh, one interesting quote I noticed, though, is it said that in contrast, uh, they needed to, you know, enforce some diversity and like the, the 
postures and stuff like that and the lighting conditions to make like the adv adversarial attack more effective yeah um, like there definitely are um kinks with it it's not like a perfect system at this point but it at least like in theory it's a lot more practical of an attack yeah um but what i would say is probably more of a practical attack is the next one which is the uh the d patch so I looked into this one a little bit and I, I thought it was really interesting because uh, basically I remember I'm, I'm just going to scroll down to where it was. Uh, I can't remember the exact page number. I think it's around here, uh, but they show a picture of a bicycle. Uh, where is it? Just scroll down a little bit. Oh, I think it's actually up. It, yeah, it's somewhere. So they, they show a picture of a bicycle. And uh, for those of you listening, basically there's two pictures of bicycles side by side and it says there's figure a with no D patch and figure B with, with a D patch and the figure a shows a, a bounding box around it showing that it's been detected as an object. But in the figure B uh, it doesn't detect it, but to visually there's almost no. Well, like, there's one really key thing though. There's the D patch up in the upper left corner. Yeah. That it, like, that's where I think this starts becoming a little bit more impractical is you okay. need to be able to embed this type of image, and they do have a better example of what it looks like uh, in the actual image. It's not just something like you could carry around or do like that. But I think it's an interesting attack nonetheless, because its idea is to kind of mess with how it does the bounding box calculations. Yeah. So, I mean, basically you can see how it just doesn't get a bounding box with this bicycle. Uh, but in other cases, oh yeah, here's kind of the close-up of what that patch kind of looks like it's just a collection of essentially pixels just random color well somewhat random colored pixels intended to kind of mess with how it's going to try and calculate the bounding box so every time it creates a bounding box it just puts it um around with wherever the d patch is actually located uh now yeah. i'm not 100 percent sure on how this would look if it were like in person, I believe though this really needs to be right, right as part of the image. You know, just add that in there, and then it breaks everything. Um, you can notice, like in this image here, the example, it just basically has bounding boxes, you know, not around the right things, which is kind of what it's messing with. Which is an interesting area to go and attack. You know, to you know, not look at just hiding the image or making it think it's something else, but finding a way to compromise that bounding box, which uh, it, it seems really counterintuitive that's even possible. Yeah. Like, that's the thing that really surprised me as I was reading through here is, you know, it's like you would expect that the bounding box, like, if it's detecting something, it should be able to detect where it's detecting it, if that makes sense. Yeah, exactly. You would think so. <laughs> so the fact that this can kind of just be placed in the corner of an image and mess with you know, bounding boxes, even if it does detect something, although it even messes with the object classification. So yeah, I so don't know. I, it's, I, it's just a weird, weird attack. So I guess I was a little bit um, misinformed. I, I was under the impression that you could actually use this in a real world scenario, like wear the patch or something like that. I didn't know it had like, I, I saw that it was directly injecting the image. Yeah, like I mean, because you kind of have to have those exact pixels being seen. Yeah. Um. So that that I think is where you might have some issues. Yeah, 
I mean, one quote I that I that I saw on there was that it, it was referencing some of the attacks we've talked about in the past, right? Injecting noise into the entire image. So like the the brightness stuff, like we were talking about with the cars and banking left and right and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, and they were calling those attacks less practical because you needed to manipulate the entire image. Whereas with this, you only need to manipulate like a you small know, that, area, a, but you still need area. to manipulate the image. And I mean, I'm not sure I totally agree with them because manipulating any part of the image is manipulating the image. Like if an attacker is able to control the pixels in one area directly, they're likely able to control the pixels throughout the entire image. There are a few places where I can think of where they'd actually only be able to control a small area. Um, unless yeah. it is, like, say, if they can actually just have, like, the poster being physically present. But nothing else in the paper really seems to indicate that. And, like, if that was the case, you would expect there to be a demonstration of that. Yeah, and, you know, it does look a lot more obvious that it's an adversarial image than some of the other ones we've seen in the past. Yeah, so I guess like that conclusion is a little bit weird. I, I like maybe I'm missing something to make it more practical, but yeah, thinking back, I on mean, it of now, course, they is... want to kind of put this in the best light that they can, and it is true compared to other ones. Like, you have to modify a lot less of the image, but you have to modify it a lot in a in an a lot more obvious way, okay? And like, I can't think of a lot of places where an attacker would just be able to. Um, control like that corner or some little area of the image and not have complete control over the image uh, the only thing i could think of is like having a small little sticker that you literally place on like the camera lens yeah i mean th the one area i guess it could be useful is maybe you could hide the patch in some area of an image but it is like that patch looks like you know like you know like snow on a yeah, and, and it, it needs to stand out too in order to be effective. It's not like um, well, the ones we talked about pretty early on was uh, where it would kind of add a signal to the images uh, that uh, the neural network would be trained to detect. Yeah, uh, it's not like that. Where it, was, it made changes to the entire image, but they were all subtle. Like if you just looked at the image on its own, you wouldn't really notice anything. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely a different style of an attack where only controlling one portion of the image. But like you said, I guess if you can control one portion of, portion of the image, you could probably control the whole image in almost all cases. So Yeah, like I can't really think of many cases where you only get that little control. Unless it's like, you know, you control a watermark. So I yeah, guess that could be true. an example of a case where you only need a partial. But yeah. I don't know, I feel like that's really kind of stretching it. Yeah, probably. Especially if your watermark's going to be something like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, you know, we'll, we'll spare AI a little bit on this episode. Uh, I, I honestly, I was thinking this attack was a bit more practical, but looking into it a bit more now, I've, I've changed my mind. <laughs> no, but I, I definitely like the last one. I really think that's, like, that, that one's kind of neat. Yeah, it takes a little bit of the environment setup, but that's also something an attacker could potentially do, like, if they're planning this. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, this so, one, I really felt, wasn't super uh, practical. Yeah, it's fair. So, let's talk about uh, Trust Zone. So, do you know, have you looked too much at Trust Zone, Z? And, and your, Not uh... at Trust Zone itself, because that's the ARM-specific thing. But I am familiar with, like, trusted execution environments. Okay. Yeah, so for those of you listening who don't know much about uh, 
trusted execution environments or TEEs. It's basically for isolating secure code and data from what's deemed as insecure code and data. So in products like phones and gaming consoles and stuff, that can even mean um, that trust zone is technically higher in the trust chain than even the operating system. Um, so it's common for things like crypto and it's hardware enforced. And one of the one of the more common cryptos, or at least maybe not today, but you know, a few years ago was uh, ECDSA, uh, the elliptic curve stuff. And uh, this article basically talks about using side channel attacks to uh, break the ECDSA signing keys to be able to recover the private keys, which is quite interesting because like ECDSA is kind of comp- kind of complicated in math, right? Like it's it's a lot of like uh, what is it like calculus and stuff involved? No, in it? it's not not too or... much calculus. Um, now, uh, getting into elliptic curves is definitely getting towards the limits of anything that was covered back when I was in school. Uh, but yeah. uh, I believe it still deals a little bit more like with set theory along the lines of RSA, but goes beyond that into um, uh, well elliptic curves, but um. I believe, I'm sure somebody with a lot more knowledge would, you know, correct me on this one, but um, I believe uh, the, the premise of it is still kind of similar to the group theory stuff of RSA, uh, kind of like the modulus stuff, but you bring in the elliptic curve to that. That said, I feel like I'm completely off base with that. Nonetheless, like, I feel like a clip, uh, elliptic curve stuff, though, is uh, quantum secure, or at least some of them are, not all of them are. So, you know, in the future, we may see this getting used more often. Okay. Uh, that yeah. said, like, don't, anybody listening, don't trust my explanation of it. You know, that's at the very edge of anything I was taught in university. Crypto's it's hard. not something that <laughs> I, I'm super familiar with. Yeah. So I will uh, talk about this quote, because this is probably the meat of the article. And it basically says, um a lot of the ECDSA signing stuff is in a multiplication loop and it produces a nonce. But if someone can recover even just a few bits of that nonce, they can use other, they can like chain it with other techniques to recover a full private key. And uh, so what they attacked was uh, a table lookup operation. And I think they also attacked another one, like a, a conditional the other one was a conditional um there's a conditional subs- uh, subtraction on the uh based on the last bit of that nonce and you know yeah. like i would say like i mean yeah there's a like there's already known existing analysis techniques to go from those few bits to get the full key uh the details of that are actually in the full paper which is linked in this uh, that we don't actually have up but I mean, okay. the meat of the, their attack, what's new here, are these two conditional places that actually leak information. Because the loop yeah. itself does do some, uh, tries to secure itself against some of these side channel things. And I mean, going a little bit deeper, like where this is coming from, are you've got the secure world, as Spectre mentioned earlier, and the unsecure world, kind of the open world. And both of those, though, um, when... When the CPU is executing code, it's executing, like it sees the instructions and it has those implemented in something called microcode. And in, in the microcode, there are these kind of like this micro architecture, like structures uh, that are used there. Uh, so where this attack kind of comes in is it's, uh, 
uh, basically from the unsecure world, you're able to see, or you're able to at least derive some information about what information is in the cache that was put there by the secure cache. Or sorry, by the secure side, they both have the shared cache. Uh, so that's where this lookup happens, and then there's certain artifacts where um, you're able to discover what was looked up or what's kind of present or absent uh, in terms of the secure world entries into this cache, and that's kind of how they're leaking this information. Yeah. So... I did have a question because it stated that it uh, like both of the locations that they talk about have countermeasures, uh, but they say, uh, let me just scroll to it in the article, but they say that due to spatial and temporal resolution, uh, it's possible to overcome these countermeasures. So like I've heard of temporal resolution of like, you know, uh, using like, it's basically a timing attack as far as I understand it. But what do they, do you know what they really mean by spatial in this case? Yeah. Well, my immediate assumption would be dealing with the space that something takes up rather than just the time that it okay. takes to catch it or to look it up. Because I looked it up and it was talking uh, like when I did a quick Google search of it before the stream, I, I, I saw that it was talking about like uh, like the distribution of pixels in an image or something like that. I was like, OK, well, that doesn't really <laughs> that doesn't really fit into the uh, crypto stuff too well in that regard i don't think yeah so. it doesn't fit here um i mean they do go into a lot more information on the actual paper and that also goes into more information about the uh analysis techniques also to go from just the few bits to uh the full thing or to the full key okay yeah so i guess we'll, we'll link both in the description um but there's another thing i was thinking about do you so i know the ps3 used ucdsa uh, do you remember how large the key size was? No, I mean, I didn't do very much work on the PS3 at all. Yeah, I didn't either. It was just like, uh, they were basically saying that the few bits are enough to recover a 256-bit ECDSA key. And I remember that, like, you know, PS3, that's their big, like, ECDSA is the big crypto. So technically, if you could use this attack, you could, uh, you know, create like a 3.55 situation on yeah but what architecture was the ps3 uh ppc so i mean this is specifically i believe in the arm specifically in the qualcomm implementation of the secure environment oh, okay that, environment good point this isn't just the general attack i mean i'm sure there are um attacks that you know could be applicable to the ps3 i just don't think this is one of them okay yeah, it's a good point. I didn't even think about the like ARM and PPC thing. Man, killing my dreams. Uh, so yeah, yeah, trying to write all those PS3 O days now. Yeah, we're we're got tired of the PS4. Yep, yeah, that's basically it. So so what what is it now? Six point two. When when are you releasing that exploit? Oh, uh, my my common joke has been uh, May fifth. 2055 or something like that. So, All right, yeah. I will uh, set a reminder on my calendar. Yeah, there you go. So, PayPal. So, I remember, I think you shared this article. Yeah, I think about... I came across on uh, Reddit, probably. Honestly, this is, part of this is just a pet peeve of mine. Uh, just when bounty hunters try and overplay their issues. Uh, but oh, the okay. gist so of this... you don't agree with the premise of the article, then? Um... 
Well, uh, the title of the article, I mean, asking if I agree with that is one thing, you know, the ability to get user balances and transaction details. Uh, that can be a vulnerability, but in this case, I don't think it is. I mean, the gist of what this one is, is you get an OAuth request link. You give that to somebody else, or like you... So the OAuth request link is basically like you're going to link your account so some other service can perform actions on your behalf. A uh, common example of this, or easy example of this, not common, but uh, for the 0x0539 website, we offer the ability to log in using Discord. Uh, so to do that, you register with Discord first. You know, you click, you either click to link your account or click to register with Discord, and it generates this link that goes to a Discord has kind of our own little application ID with it, and Discord's like, "Hey, do you want to give this website uh, permission to access your?" Uh, I I don't think we request any scope, so I think it only says something like your username or whatever. Um, I don't remember what exactly it says, but it's basically like, "Hey, do you want to?" Um, give this site permission to access it and you click okay and it authorizes it and then you go back to the zero x website and it has this little token that i can then use to make requests to discord on your behalf so that's the normal process so what this is doing is like if somebody were to have an account on zero x and then uh when they go to link an account they get that link that goes to discord and they give it to you and they tell you, hey, go check out this link and you end up linking your account to my account on this other service. That's the gist of what's going on here. Okay, so it sounds more like a phishing attack. Than it's a exactly a phishing attack. Like the only real special thing here is that the other application has PayPal in the name. Because I, I don't understand the dynamics here. I haven't actually used WeChat. Uh, and it has to do with WeChat. Apparently, PayPal kind of created like a, a WeChat link or like a application or something. So it shows PayPal, but it's still you're getting a link from somebody and you're authorizing this other application that has PayPal in the name uh, to see your information. PayPal isn't going to be asking you to authorize PayPal to see it. It's another application. Uh, so yeah. like there's no way really that PayPal can prevent this like they have no way to check if you're if the wechat account it's trying to link to is actually you know the paypal account owner i mean it's presumed that when you try and link an account to somewhere you're linking it to your own account like there's nothing really paypal can see here that they can prevent or do it's just it's a phishing attack you get them to link their account to you yeah, and then on top of that, there is also the limited impact, right? You're not able to send transactions or anything like that. You're only able to basically view the balance and perhaps the transaction history, which is yeah. You know, I mean, unless the issue, but unless the account actually like unless the other application actually asks for more permissions, which they don't in this case. In another website, it might, but yeah, in this case, like it also doesn't do very much. You can just do whatever WeChat would have allowed you to do through PayPal. So in theory, you know, in the future, maybe WeChat has some paid version or something and you can make the transaction that way. But yeah, yeah. like in this case, I mean, it's just like basically the only thing special here is the fact that it's a PayPal in the company name. Like that's, that's the only thing. Uh, like I am, the way this guy ended it, like uh, the last paragraph or two 
yeah, it's just like, here. yeah, right there. So as a white hat for hacker one, I suggest you do not submit this type of vulnerability to PayPal because there will be no reward. And I mean, it's just like, come on, man. Like, I mean, <laughs> I'm, I'm like 99.9% sure. All this guy's doing is trying to get that social outrage by posting this, hoping that people are going to back him up. Yeah. Trying to get that validation, I guess. Yeah, well, get enough outrage so they pay him out better. Yeah. But it's like, this is... Well, this is not a CVE. Not a CVE. Okay. Uh, no, I mean, I, when I read it, I was kind of, like... I was thinking this along the same lines as you. Like, this doesn't really seem like it's fair to PayPal. Um, although, like... I was kind of reserving a bit of judgment because a lot of the, like, there's a lot of supporting images in this article, but they're all in Chinese writing and I can't understand Chinese. Like, I don't know why the article's written in English, but they like, it just annoys me. But well, because know. more people are going to read it in English, even though all the pictures are Chinese, but I mean, I've kind of explained the gist of it. You're giving an OAuth link to somebody else and getting, convincing them to link their account to yours. Yeah. So basically, in summary, not a CVE. <laughs> yeah. And I also don't agree. The very one of the last sentences is also, you know, from this behavior of dealing with vulnerabilities, you can see that personal privacy data is meaningless in PayPal. <laughs> it's this guy who's trying so hard to he's validate, kind of like to overplay his finding. He's kind of straw manning there, like trying to make it seem like the issue is that PayPal doesn't care about the information leakage, where it's more about how it's carried out than the end result. Is how yeah, I, I mean, this just isn't isn't a worthwhile issue, I guess you could say. It's not yeah. something they could even really go and fix too easily. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so let's talk about uh, some some CI. So this this was kind of a clever title, I thought. See, I knew there would be bugs here. So uh, for those of you who aren't too familiar with like Git and version control and stuff, uh, CI is basically it stands well, for continuous. So this is a little bit more than just Git. It's uh, you know like Travis and the things that actually build it, not just your version control. Okay, that's true. Good point. Um, but yeah, it's basically, you know, continuous integration services. So one example of that, I'm, I'm going to go back to Git for this, is basically uh, you know, you submit, like you commit code and then it will automatically attempt to build that code and run some automated tests. Well, so Git up. doesn't do that though, is my point. Okay. Travis well, does. Yeah. So this, this example, this whole report tends to focus on Travis. There is GitLab that also does this type of continuous integration. Uh, Circle CI is the other one mentioned in here. But yeah, this one focuses on Travis. So, you know, you set up your pipeline. So when you commit or commit to a certain branch, it builds that, it possibly integrates or deploys that. This graph shows that, like, you know, commit yeah. your code change, build, test. Um, if they pass, you know, you just wait for another commit. If it fails, you fix code and commit more code changes, you know, and it builds it and runs a test and just kind of does that over and over. Some of them will also deploy automatically for you. Uh, but it's Git is kind of backing it up or telling you like when there's a change or when something's changed to it. But it's yeah. it's these other applications that actually do the continuous integration. Or integration testing. Yeah. So sorry, I misspoke there. I, yeah, I didn't mean like GitHub directly or anything like that. It, yeah, it's the external build systems that are used. Um, 
And one thing that I noticed was uh, later on in the article, uh, I'll try to search to it. It basically says that they were able to uh, leak access tokens for GitHub uh, through Travis CI, I think. And, uh, and one of them, actually, I'm going to go to this quote, but basically they managed to get an, uh, an employee's GitHub access token with read-write access under the, the Discourse GitHub organization. Uh, so... Yeah, you I was going to maybe comment on that aspect. But I wanted to go just okay. before you jump into that, you know, this whole okay. thing isn't really any sort of new attack. Uh, this is just open source intelligence searching. Um, basically, one of the issues here is that like Travis CI, you know, these open source projects will have their automatic build. So that way they can show the little build tag on GitHub, like build working, test passing, or build not working, you know, tests are failing. Um, it can kind of show that right on the GitHub page, the application page, or whatever. Yeah, and they'll badges. show that. And the other thing, though, is you can access things like logs from that build. So if they uh, put out any uh, sensitive information, indicate what environment variables are being set, uh, things like that, then in the logs, which are publicly accessible when you use some of the public services. Uh, so again, they use Travis a lot for this. So Travis.org, it's all public. All these build records, you can just go and basically pull them right up and see the build. Uh, Travis.com has some more privacy stuff, but it's paid. Okay. Uh, so that's where this one comes in with Discourse. Uh, somebody had gone and uh, had one of the tokens right in. Um, it, basically, the token ended up in the log, and that would allow read-write access to everything in the company's GitHub. What did they get for it? $128. Yeah, so I just I just wanted to add on quickly there. So that sounds a lot like uh, what happened with Facebook and the password logging. Very similar with logging the auth tokens in the in like it potentially accessible uh, logs. Except the logs are public instead of internal to Facebook. I thought yeah, that'd be I mean, I I feel like the root cause would be pretty different. Like I could imagine again, we don't really know what happened with. Facebook, but I would imagine that just kind of overzealous logging. Whereas some of the logging that can expose secrets in like the build log, I don't know, you just, you don't necessarily think about the build log as being your exposure point until you realize that build logs can be public, such as in cases like this, uh, where it's likely, you know, in environment variables that just kind of get output. Um, so yeah. rather than being overzealous logging, um, it's just, it's a little bit different, but at the same time, I don't know what actually happened with Facebook, so I can't make that claim. Okay. Uh, but I, the fact that he got $128, like, yeah, this isn't a permanent issue. Like, this isn't like, you know, a cross-site scripting where somebody can just go and attack it right away. But it's really... Like, basically, he, he indicated, like, several places he found these tokens, and this was the lowest payment... Uh, that he received for them, and it was read right <laughs> to their actual company GitHub. Uh, yeah, no I, further yeah. information was given. I mean, at the same time, though, if they don't have a, um, if this isn't part of the scope for the bug bounty, mm -hmm. then you know, should he expect to get paid? And I mean, I would argue no. Like, if it's out of scope, I don't know what the scope is for Discourse and their bounty. That said, a lot of places, things like this would be considered out of scope because this isn't in their application code. Uh, so they would not consider this in scope. So what might have happened 
is that somebody on Discord was like, you know, this isn't in scope. We shouldn't pay this out. And management's like, nope, we're not paying. But then somebody's like, no, this is a serious issue. We should pay this out. So like, fine, just pay them, you know, the lowest thing. Oh, uh, so it was basically somebody fought to get even that. I don't know if that's the case. Again, I'm just trying to be charitable with some of these things. Say perhaps, yeah, you know, advocate. yeah, like perhaps, you know, this 128, like maybe they weren't going to give them anything. So at least, you know, somebody tried to give them something. I mean, it's laughable, but if it's not in scope, I can completely understand, you know, not paying it out. Yeah, I mean, maybe it's just because I'm more of a cynic than you, but I don't. It almost kind of seems like a, almost like a screw you kind of. Th- I guess a complete screw you would just be not paying it, but, uh, like, I don't know. It just sure. I actually like... agree with you. Like, I I do think that. Like personally, that is my thought. Okay. But if it's not in scope, that's kind of the other thing. Is things like this usually aren't in scope, uh, which means like it's. Had he actually, if he actually tested it to see what permissions that thing had, uh, it, it's yeah. actually illegal. It's not just like, oh, well, I'm a white hand, you know, there's a bug bounty. Like, no, if it wasn't in scope, it's legitimately a crime. Again, yeah, I don't know if he, he actually did that. that. Well, he did push the one file, but we don't know if that was kind of like to prove, like, after being in contact with him. That, yeah, that's that's true. I I didn't see anything mentioning that, so. I guess it'd be, uh, we can't really guess. Yeah, so, I mean, this is kind of handling it somewhat wrong. Like, this is definitely an issue. It's somewhat common, too. But, um, I've got to raise the question about what the actual, uh, scope is. Because this is something that is often just not in scope. I mean, we, we could, I don't know if, I could try maybe pulling up the hacker one profile and seeing if it would list it. I don't know if. I don't really use Hacker One. Uh, do you know if there's like an overall list of what's in scope? Uh, they... scroll up just slightly again. Oh wait, I, I think I see it here. We're not interested in SE. Uh, okay, yeah. So it actually does look like it's not in scope. So they actually have one hundred and twenty-eight dollars here uh, for a medium risk uh, triage. So an exploit that causes user to perform an op. An operation that yeah well that, it's explaining what c surf is yeah so would you say that this issue is more severe than c surf and thus should have warranted a higher payout than 128 well so i mean their next example though is like xss and just exploit resulting in privilege escalation or downloading a site database like they don't explain those too well as being medium high i mean the thing is if they don't actually include in scope their ci build this is really like all of these issues talking about here. They're all things in a web application. Yeah. None of these are things that would be in the CI. So this is information disclosure basically by employee. I'll say incompetence. I don't necessarily think that's true, but you know, the gist of it, uh, it looks like their whole bounty here is focused on, web application issues which makes sense most things focus on having their bounty on their application itself what are the exclusions down at the bottom uh denial of service spamming social engineering uh any physical attempts against discourse property yeah Um, so i mean it's not really fall under that i mean it could you could call it under social engineering kind of i mean it didn't really require any but just in the sense of uh, the information disclosure in that way. 
Yeah. I mean, it's definitely a stretch. Yeah. I mean, after looking at that, maybe I, like, their, their payouts are already pretty low. Like, critical exploit resulting in privilege escalation, $512. Well, it does say plus, but, you know, I mean, $128. I'm, I'm a little bit more uh, accepting of it now, looking at their Hacker One page, to be honest. Um, well, I mean, most sites things, don't pay but... out very well, like $512. Yeah, they just don't have the the resources to do it. That right? Web apps just don't pay very well, you know, to be yeah. honest about it. That, yep, that's why I don't do web app exploitation. <laughs> I don't know if I don't know if I'll get into it in the future, but it's just, yeah, well, it doesn't pay well and it seems very, um... well, actually, I, I like this issue. I think this is a really interesting issue. Well, so this isn't really something that would be counted. Like I said, it's not in scope for a lot of things. It's open source intelligence is what this is. Yeah. So it's something that like a pen tester doing a recon could come across. Yeah. Uh, you'd imagine like somebody who's targeting kind of the whole of discourse, like the company, not an application, which HackerOne generally tends to be more AppSec focused. Yeah. I mean, that said, I do think things like this are absolutely issues that, you know, people need to fix and stuff. It's just, I also understand when they define a scope more narrowly to just the application, something like this kind of comes in on the side. Yeah, I guess the more important focus of the article isn't uh, the, you know, hack against uh, Concourse specifically. But I think what's more important is just that exposure of getting that information out there that, hey, these logs do actually log important information and you probably do want to look through those because there's probably a lot of repos out there that have continuous integration, that have these logs public, that have the same kind of vulnerabilities. Yeah, being so it able looks to like... hijack a repo is a pretty, you know, that's a pretty big impact. Yeah, it looks like uh, Travis at least has started trying to censor these things. Like when you print an environment variable, if it notices the variable it ends like with username or with key, it'll just replace that with secret. Um, and okay. I mean, yeah, this is absolutely like it is an issue uh, that's reasonably widespread. Like, it's, it's out there. This whole report isn't really about any sort of new attack. It's more about some techniques that this guy used, some little hints and tricks, uh, you know, to find the right variables, how to start searching, some Google search start, like, not really dorks, but, like, some things to kind of get you started. It's a good overview of looking for this type of information in CI logs. Like, it includes, yeah. like, a little bookmarklet to try and find uh, the CI page from a Git repo, or from a GitHub repo. You know, little things like that that just make the work a bit easier to do. Like, it's a great little write-up and stuff. It's just, it's not a new thing, but it's it's worth a read if you're interested in this. Yeah, it's just honestly something I personally never thought about. And uh, I actually do have, like, I am involved in a project that has continuous integration. So I think I, after this, I may actually take a look at it and see if it has this kind of stuff too. Oh, see what type of information you're leaking? Yep. <laughs> I mean, prob there probably isn't any, but you know, you know, I'm safe, of course. No, I, yeah, I, I will take a look at it, and like anybody who's potentially listening, you know, at the on the VOD or or live or whatever that has continuous integration, you know, if you, if you haven't thought about this kind of attack, and I know I sure haven't, it's probably interesting to take a look at this article. Uh, 
see if uh, you're. Yeah, I mean, you're logs can turn off a lot of interesting information, CI or otherwise. Uh, what's that? Sorry, can you say that again? Said uh, logs can turn off some interesting information, you know, CI or otherwise. There's, you know, what's getting logged can sometimes surprise you. Yeah. So we're we're gonna go back to some uh, cars. You know, remotely killing cars. Yeah, engines. what isn't surprising is that vehicles or aftermarket add-ons to vehicles are once again vulnerable. Uh, yeah. So what is it? This case, the uh, attacker finds that in some cases he can kill a vehicle engine after breaking into the GPS tracking devices. So this is something looks like it's used largely in like you know South Africa. Um, it looked like mostly Africa is what if a lot of things were reading, actually. Um, I'm sorry. That's all right. Uh, so it looks yeah, like it's used by... Right, like, well, <laughs> I mean, bad. at least survive long enough to finish this episode. Then you can uh, then do I'll whatever die. you want. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so... I mean, it looks like this is the type of thing that, you know, an enterprise have a lot of vehicles and might install in their vehicles to kind of track them. Has some of them, if the vehicle is going under like 20 kilometers an hour, they can kill the engine remotely through this application, through its little API. And I mean, this thing, like, so that feature seems understandable. It's mostly for tracking, but, you know, somebody's idling killed their engine for them. Uh, like, they do have to be moving slow or be stopped for that. But what happened here is, and this is really an example of why you don't use default passwords, like just don't hard code a default password into something, is basically the attacker just brute forced uh, the unique ID numbers, or is it IDs or usernames? Either way, use brute force just with that default password and found a ton of accounts that are still using the default password. So log in and do everything. Yeah, and I mean, it is kind of incredible uh, how common that is, right? Using default passwords or using really weak passwords. And this is one area where <clears throat> I think, I feel like default passwords shouldn't even be a thing in something that's critical. Would you agree on that? Like, I like I feel like they um, should prompt you to, to I mean, I don't think password. default passwords should be used, period. Like, I don't think anything should have that backdoor password, the oh. default password, just <clears throat> at all. I don't think so either, but I think especially that. in this case, I don't think it's it's like should that be said, thing. if you're going to have an argument for anywhere that it could be used, it it's where things like this, it is these embedded devices where it's not so easy to just generate a new password or force a new password to be used, where there are complications. Like if anything, <laughs> these sorts of embedded devices are where I think you could argue for it to be used. Yeah. Um, not that I would argue for it to be used. But yeah. these are places where I could see it being used. Yeah, sorry, I'm just trying to clean up a little bit. I can't believe that happened, man. I was just taking a drink, and then I just... I, oh, that was, yeah, that was fun. Can be hard gonna sometimes. There's going to be some, gonna um, be some, some cleanup after this episode. But yeah, so I guess I'll move on. Like, that's the gist of the attack, is he broke <clears throat> force using the default password. Uh, uh, but the way he handled this, uh, the way the hacker <laughs> contacted the company asking for a reward... Uh, I mean, that's just a ransom. I'm just asking for a ransom. <laughs> and that's what the company actually said in response. If we pay you, you will give us a tool and will not hack our account again. How can we be sure about this? 
Uh, sorry for too many questions. This is the first time we meet. This is disaster. I mean, the company's right. Like, this is somebody who has found an issue and is now asking for money. Uh, I mean, I don't even see this as being, like, white hat at all. I think this is just somebody who legitimately wanted to kind of ransom the bug to get some cash out of it. Didn't get Starting it, so they company. turned to the media. I mean, even this quote right here, I can absolutely make a big traffic problem all over the world. Uh, I think that's kind of disingenuous because, like, these ProTrack and iTrack applications, like, I've never even heard of them before. I mean, I'm not too big into cars and add-ons and stuff, so maybe that's why, but, like, I feel like that's just trying to blow it up to make it sound more impactful than it is. I mean, yeah, it's like... true, true, it is impactful, but I mean, like, it's another case, I think, of just trying to, yeah, use the media as a medium to try to get what you want. Like, uh, it does is... show a lot of uses over here in Morocco alone. <clears throat> like, you know, that's a fair number of vehicles in the screenshot active at that moment. Yeah. That said, like, I mean, it definitely seems somewhat regional in terms of the impact. I've also never heard of these, but it's also not something I'd look at getting. I'm not really in the market for, like, an enterprise vehicle management system. I, I just prefer cars that are just, you know, a box with four wheels and an engine. Like, <laughs> I don't think we need to add I like all this seats. other shit on there. And seats, yeah, I guess those are important, too. Seat belts. <clears throat> <laughs> media system well contained media system you know like a you know maybe a radio <laughs> I, I, I don't like uh you know i don't think we should have a web browser in our dashboard um no but i do need irc so at least a terminal <laughs> IRC. as long as i can get links yeah there you go but um, yeah i mean this is it looks like it looks like they have their share of the market in some areas I'm yeah. I'm doubtful about his he can shut off the engines of hundreds of thousands of vehicles just because it's not every vehicle by the sounds of it, it's not every vehicle that can be uh, have the engine turned off and even those that can they already have to be stopped or going quite slow. I was going to say didn't it have to be less than 14 miles an hour or something like that? Yeah, less than 20 yeah. kilometers per hour which is roughly 20 yeah, miles. Okay. Yeah. So I mean <clears throat> One of the, another like takeaway I think is I'm not a fan of when uh, people especially use the media to try to like get their way and get paid out for bugs when there's no indication that the company is willing to do that. Um, but well, on the it flip literally side, is ransom at that point. Yeah, but on the flip side, I do think these companies sh should have bug bounty programs if if they're gonna, you know. Like, just because of the potential impact? So a bug bounty is really just a sign of a mature security program in a company. And obviously so this company doesn't when a really company have. isn't mature, then, like, um, it just doesn't make sense for them to have uh, a bug bounty. That said, I do agree with you. Like, I do think every company should have a bounty or should, at the very least, have a means of reporting these things and have something um but at the same time when they don't that is the company's choice not to have that and we just have to leave it at that like if you do that if you do start looking at them then you are facing the legal consequences of that yeah i mean maybe like yeah for all companies i mean that i could see people saying that's you know too much but i what i mainly mean for is like you know anything to deal with cars like anything dealing i think 
if you wanted to put it into more of a legal nomenclature, I think anything that deals with real world uh, objects like cars, then security has should like be enforced on those companies. So mature security. Uh, sure, but I think there policy. are some requirements, you know, from like in the U.S. The um, is a I want to say FTC, but I, I think it would be the FTC. Federal I Transport something. If that's C oh, or if no. that's something else. FTC is federal federal trade, I think. Uh, yeah, but yeah, I, I think I know which one you're talking about. I mean, <clears throat> yeah, it's just I think we we need more secure standards on things that deal with you know potential killing machines. Well, so I mean, like, with Comma AI, if you remember that with GeoHot, um, you know that got shut down over essentially not doing the appropriate testing, and perhaps that's why we haven't heard of this thing, you know, in the U.S. and Canada. It's because it simply hasn't even tried to pass any sort of safety metrics for that. So, whereas yeah, that they might be okay point. with it in Morocco, maybe yeah. not so much uh, in the U.S. on U.S. roads. Yeah, that is a fair point that, you know, it's, you know, obviously in other parts of the world, it, it's probably easier to get by with looser security standards than in, uh, you know, the more... Yeah, like you know, all the, the countries mentioned, like, like Morocco, uh, Indonesia... They're not exactly countries that I think uh, that when I hear their name, I think uh, safety or like road safety. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's fair. I'm trying to find the list of countries here again, but yeah, South Africa, Morocco, India, Philippines. Uh, so like none of say, those. It says in a handful of countries around the world, but I don't know if I'd really like those are all in relatively the same. Like, uh, the Philippines and India yeah, are definitely off from South Africa, Morocco, and then even South Africa and Morocco are on yeah. opposite sides of Africa. Yeah, but I feel like you're ignoring a lot of like Europe, uh, North America. You're missing <laughs> all the places that have like better standards on it. So I wouldn't yeah. be surprised to find out that these just simply were not available because of the standard requirement, like because of the hoops that they need to jump through in the more established countries. Yeah. So yeah, I guess that uh that'll wrap up our our car uh cynical discussion because our next article is on uh, Windows Ten. Yeah, well, uh, so kind of Windows Ten. Uh, <laughs> it's about the okay. security baseline. Uh, so this mostly impacts uh kind of the defaults for you know Windows Server for enterprise users, not so much your average user. And the main thing I just want to talk about here was just the um, the removal of password expiration as being a default. So I think it was like 90 days or something. Ah, uh, yeah, I remember hearing about that. That, that it would expire it, and, and now that's not part of the default anymore, or won't be as of the May update. So I'm, I'm curious, what are your thoughts on password expiration policies? Uh, they annoy me quite a bit. They annoy me too, but I mean, like, what do you think of them from a security stand? Like, do you think they're effective? Well, so they can be. I mean, the idea of uh, the password expiration is that you have a password that's strong enough that even if it is compromised, so even if the hash is compromised, that is, the hash can't be broken before the password expires or shouldn't be breakable before the password expires. Okay. Um, that that's kind of the gist of it. So no password, 
that's active should be compromised <coughs> um, before it's expired. You know, it, the passwords then need to have the complexity requirements and all of that to say that it shouldn't or that it should have this much entropy so that it takes so long to actually break. In theory, obviously things can be broken quicker or faster, whatever. Yeah. But in theory, it should provide enough security that it should last until the expiration, at least. Uh, and in I that guess... sense, it does offer some security, having that routine. But people end up making worse choices about their password. They start reusing things that starts like, you know, password one. Then the next time you have to change it, password two, password three. And then you've kind of lost the security. <clears throat> I Yeah, I mean, my counterpoint to that would be any password hash that could be broken in 30 to 90 days. It's probably already too shitty anyways. Like, I, you know... Well, it's at least that long. It's not that long. It's just, like, it needs... The idea there is that it won't be cracked in less than that time. I mean, it could be pushed to be stronger... But the password needs to be able to and can be shown that it can hold up for at least that period of time. Yeah, I mean, I feel like I'd be a bit more okay with it if it wasn't so um, uh, frequent. Like, I feel like if it was, you know, every year or two years or something like that, you had to change your password, I'd be a lot more okay with it. But like you said, when you start getting to a monthly basis, coming up with passwords can be hard. So it's way easier to just tack on like the month or something onto the yeah, password. Yeah, and I, for what it's worth, like secure. the NIST standard, like oh, the uh, national, the NIST, like NIST eight hundred sixty three or whatever it is, like the standard oh. for like digital identity security and stuff. Uh, the most recent update, which I think was still a couple years ago, like it was in twenty seventeen, I think, but they dropped uh, password expiration checks from being in their recommended process. Um, what they did add was checking dumps for the password and blocking passwords based on, like, if it's been found in a password dump, then they can block it, but they shouldn't have any other requirements. No complex, yeah. like, they also push for no complexity requirements, <clears throat> just allow at least 64 characters, minimum 8, um, and no other complexity checks, uh, expiration, reuse, just check the dumps, make sure it's not in there, that's optional. Uh, but suggested and i mean since that removed it i think that's why we're seeing windows remove it also yeah. and i mean like i've i think it's a good move i think there's better security options that are less of a hassle for the user i think in the windows thing here they actually talk about 2fa yeah, yeah. and i mean that is absolutely a useful security process yeah and another thing they mentioned is uh enforcing banned passwordless so like i guess checking common dictionaries and yeah. banning passwords against those, which I think are both better, like even individually better than password expiration policies. So both of them, like I, I, is this like a planned thing that windows is going to do in the future? I don't think it already does this, right? I don't think so, but that's something that's kind of been getting like the technique itself has kind of been getting some popularity in the last couple of years, especially since, uh, have I been pwned released like their password check thing? Where you can actually check your password to see if the password has been pwned anywhere. And like provide yeah. an API for that. And since that, there's definitely been kind of an uptick. In, or at least I've in discussion involving uh, that type of security. Like I think it's a good move. That is stronger, I think, than forcing the reset. 
So, I mean, I'll be honest, one of the few times I've ever, I didn't write down the password itself, but that I wrote something down to remind me was when I had this account that every 60 days, the password needed to be changed. And, you know, being good, I didn't use, like, a similar password between all of them, like, just going from one to two to three or something. Uh, but that was one of the few times I could have used a password manager for it. Um, that I, I didn't write the password down, but I wrote down enough that I could recover it. And, like, that absolutely was not a secure thing to do. Yeah. Um, and it's only because I couldn't keep remembering them. Because it got to the point where... I wouldn't remember what the password was, so I would try a few, and then I would lock myself out. Yeah, yep, so I'm I guess being combined before. with uh, <laughs> two few failure attempts. Yeah. Which, just on a side note, the failure attempts, it makes sense to lock people out for a time on failure. I'm not against that. But too few is a really big hassle for users, too. Like yeah. having too few attempts. Yeah. Uh, and outside of the passwords, uh, I'm not going to talk about this one too much, but they also, uh, another one I found kind of cool was the uh, the SVC host mitigation options policy. So that basically just makes it so that any binaries loaded by SVC host have to be signed, uh, digitally signed by Microsoft. Uh, so it makes it harder to, to use that to load malicious code. Um, but it, it says, please pay special attention to this one because it could cause compatibility problems. So if you're using any like third-party code that doesn't have the uh, the signing, then it won't be allowed to run. So uh, that's just one of the other things in this policy. There's a few other, uh, you know, changes that they've made, but... Yeah, I'll be honest. I didn't read through everything. I really just wanted to bring this yeah, up to I talk about either, the password to stuff. To be quite fair. Because, yeah. I mean, that I think was kind of the interesting thing if this is. Actually, to be fair, the... Uh, mitigations are always somewhat interesting with Microsoft is bringing in, but kind of the thing that got picked up by news was the password. And to be clear, like they're not removing the ability to have uh, passwords expire. It's just not the default. Yeah. So it's still there for those of you who want to use that stupid old thing if you want to. Yeah. I mean, um, I'm sure there are some standards that want it or like companies that will only work with you if you have these sorts of security processes in there and stupid things like that. Yeah. So uh, let's talk about some, some NFC stuff. So I didn't get a chance to read too much of this, so I'm going to let uh, Z, if you could uh, break this down a little bit. Yeah, uh, I mean, this is a, the whole paper itself is kind of a nice little introduction into NFC. Really high-level overview of some stuff, some, some of the core concepts. And they introduced these two attack ideas, uh, where the gist of it is they call them wormhole attacks, where the idea being that you can read somebody's uh, NFC payment card in one location and actually use it immediately in another location, kind of transferring that data through a, they call it a wormhole, uh, to pay elsewhere and like, you know, fraudulently make purchases <clears throat> that way, seeming like the card's in somewhere else when it's not, or... Okay. Or the cards in multiple areas. When it's not. So it had like the start of its law of introductory information, talking about different cards, talking about difference between RFID and NFC, uh, a little bit of like the security in general. But the focus of this, like, says on these two wormhole ideas. So, like I said, there are two. 
Uh, one's a smartphone-based wormhole where you use two smartphones and a server. In this case, I say server. What the server is is just a laptop on the Wi-Fi network, uh, or on the or it's like something that they can both phones can connect to. So NFC gate, they use that as an application to relay the NFC information. Basically, one phone acts as the reader and another phone acts as a card emulator. So you pretend to pay with the other phone and you read it off somebody else with, with the first phone. Um, okay. First phone takes the data, reads, sends it to the server. Server sends it to the one that's pretending to be the payment card. Pretty simple okay. idea. It just proxies it, like read it, send it elsewhere. Um, and then no. the second one is using Proxmark to read it instead of the one phone. Uh, other yeah. than that, it's the same. It just has a better reading distance. Okay. So, so how? No. Go ahead. So I was just gonna say, how far away are like the wormhole you were talking about with using it, uh, using another phone uh, to emulate the original uh, NFC? How far away would that be? Do you know? Is that like within the? So though, that can be like that's kind of their thing here. Is that can be almost any distance because it's going over Wi-Fi. Uh, well, it's hitting Wi-Fi. So their example was reasonably close. But there's no reason that wouldn't work over the internet. So it can be anywhere. Well, my main thinking was just that, you know, I feel like if you use something like that, it could be easily detectable and blocked or flagged. How like, so? I don't know. Like if you if you see, you know, something that should be specific to one phone being used in one location and then it's used being used in a an entirely different country within, you know, ten minutes. Well, so it wouldn't be like, used like uh, this would be somebody walking around with their reader, you know, scanning the card while it's in your wallet in your pocket. Okay. This isn't like them tricking you to scan your card on their device where you have like a fake payment. Um, and yeah, I mean, banks and all that, they do look at that for fraud, fraudulent pur uh, purposes. Yeah, like they do look at the like distance, thing. but like the attack itself would work anywhere. If the person yeah. just bought something in kansas and then they're all of a sudden using it in morocco yeah okay fraud's probably going to pick that up <laughs> but yeah. you know like in terms of distance so like that's not a limiting factor here um and yeah. they did this using like apple pay and some other things too or android pay was another one i think they used so it wasn't just like credit cards they did this with the smartphone based nfc payments also which I do wonder if those also have the same kind of anti-fraud protections as banks and stuff do. Maybe not to the same degree. Well, I so I haven't used Apple Pay, but I have used the Pay on Android. Uh, I'm not sure if it was actually Android Pay, but essentially I still had to link it to my bank account. Uh, so like my bank's fraud protection still would have been in play. Okay. Now perhaps like I the Apple Pay... You need to put money into it, and they're like being their own payment processor. In which case, you might be right. Like they have different security process. But like when I've used that off my phone, my bank has been involved with that. Okay. Uh, yeah. So I was just looking here in the section four point two, and uh, it says, as described previously, NFC itself is, has little inherent security, which is quite interesting. As yeah. Well, I mean, what we're talking about though is the banks detecting fraudulent purchases. Oh, the NFC yeah. itself isn't a source of much security. I mean, think about it. You're just tapping your card. Like, what security could there really be there? 
I mean, well, it tries guess... to do a little bit to ensure like there's this real time transaction and stuff, like that that actual card's present. But like there isn't a lot that can be there too. Well, I mean, against this ta attack specifically, I I feel like there should be. Uh, I think it talks a little bit about this with Apple Pay that they try to do, but like you know, one use tokens. So use you know having like if you. Uh, well, so you would read the token and then use it somewhere else, though, for that first yeah. time. That wouldn't really prevent it. Mm, okay, that's fair. I mean, I'm just thinking, but if the token is used after the person who has the original phone already uses it, then it would block. I think time-based tokens can be a thing because there would be a time delay between grabbing this token from somebody and actually using it. Like, it's unlikely that you're going to read it from them. In like the same five seconds, you're going to be able to spend it elsewhere. Yeah. Like that sort of thing, I think, could be in place. I don't know what NFC really does there. Because I do know there's some crypto involved somehow, I believe. I don't really know NFC technology. Um, since you had submitted this link, I thought you were going to be talking about this. but Yeah. But of course, I... you just kind of <laughs> dropped the ball there, right? Yeah, I know. I'm I'm a bad person. Yeah, it's just a, a busy weekend. Uh, I I I did want to get to it because I do find the entire like uh, system of NFC interesting. Just because you know it's it's starting to pick up a lot of steam. Uh, I used to work at a at a grocery store. Yeah, well, it's being picked it... up in the U.S. Finally. Yeah, I mean, I used to work at a at a grocery store, and I didn't see it too often. But towards the end of you know, where I was working there, I did start to see more people using their phones to pay for stuff. And um, it's, you know, not to the same degree, but it kind of reminds me of the, uh, uh, of the car stuff and that it's again, another critical area that's not really being thought about too much in terms of security before it's just being thrown out of the wild. Uh, I don't know. I mean, opinion. there has been some security about them. The thing is that the card issuers have actually kind of been pushing back against that. I don't know if you've heard the uh, story about Mythbusters wanting to talk about RFID security. I actually didn't. What, yeah, so Mythbusters at one point actually wanted to do, you know, some myths about RFID. So this was before the uh nfc stuff before just tapping to pay so this is still chip and pin but they had wanted to do that do some myths on that they haven't shared too much about it because it's essentially they wanted to do it their lawyers got involved and then the lawyers from like visa and mastercard got involved and they're all on this call and they basically say no you can't do this or we will like pull all <laughs> funding like i i don't know i don't remember exactly what the what they would pull or what they would do but it was enough that like uh, Discovery pulled off of this. Like, they were not doing it because Visa and MasterCard would not support them talking about the security issues in uh, the RFID chips. Or the, just the lack of security <laughs> in general. So, I mean, it's not so much that people aren't looking at it. There have been a lot of things said about NFC security. And it's just generally, it's bad. Yeah, but it's just that a lot of people probably don't even care. It's just a convenience over security thing. Yeah, well, I mean, the tapping it's... is just so much faster than you know, entering, putting the card in, waiting for it to connect, entering the pin, waiting for that to go through, and like it's just such it, like. Tapping I mean, it is, is better than bandwidth. magnetic strip. Oh, it is. Yes. Uh, which at least the U.S. is finally starting to move away from, as of like the last couple of years. 
Yeah. It's like until a couple years ago, every time I was in the U.S., I was still striping my visa there every time. It wasn't... Like, Europe's had chips for a long time. Canada's had them for, like, five to ten years now. Yeah, we've had them for a while. Yeah, we've had them for a while. Not quite as long as Europe, though. And then the U.S. is, like, just switching now. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, overall, I guess... The, like, the weak point is always the, the person, right? So... Like, yeah, I mean, the, this I guess, whole attack, like the wormhole thing, I think it's a neat little idea. Sorry, can you just repeat that for the a second? The whole attack, of... like, I think it's kind of a neat little idea. Um, you know, this wormhole thing, too. Oh, definitely, uh, You know, yeah. send, it, send it off elsewhere. Like, it's a neat idea. Um, it is kind of a sophisticated attack, so I'm, I'm not sure how... Well, it takes some it. hardware. I'm not sure I'd say it's that's sophisticated maybe not, yeah but that's what i mean like maybe not sophisticated in terms of how like difficult it is to pull off but just like yeah you do need you know that other server fake uh you know something to send it off to and stuff so it, it does require a bit of a setup to to do yeah for sure um where i could see it being more interesting is less like not so much widespread attacks but like targeted attacks well, because uh, you have to be, be so close to actually do the reading here. In this case, like, Proxmark yeah. is, like, five centimeters, and your actual like, phone is, like, a centimeter. it's probably not something you're going to get hit with, you know. Well, I mean, if you're standing in line behind somebody at, like, a coffee shop, like, you could probably do it. Or in line at DEF CON. <laughs> or in line, yeah. Care, take your credit cards with, or take your, uh, your phones with payment stuff on them and credit cards to DEF CON. Totally not a bad idea. <laughs> oh, should be fine yeah i was fine uh yeah actually i do think one of my credit cards got uh cloned while i was at defcon some years ago <laughs> oh really i think so that's like i'm not com absolutely convinced to have my defcon but that seems like the most likely case is that it happened there although it wasn't used for a while afterwards so maybe not yeah. But it, it seemed like DEFCON was related to that. I don't know for sure. Uh, obviously, yeah. everything's fine, but uh, and it wasn't NFC either. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. Uh, and I think we're, we're talking a bit about this before the stream, um, but I think it, it's worth mentioning in the stream too, as I remember we were talking a little bit about uh, like RFID stealing and uh, I think the the range has been increased. Like the range has been getting better for uh, theft devices, right? Like I think I think you can well, get. Well, people within a have done things where it's like several feet away, or apparently, you know, like just collecting all the RFIDs in a room. Uh, that was some years ago. I remember there being a demo of that. I'm not sure how similar it is with NFC. I do know they are slightly different, but yeah, there and have been antennas made to do like some uh, much wider area captures of it. I wouldn't say they're super accessible, though. Like, most readers you're going to buy are not getting you that that uh, great of a distance to read from. Yeah. But, I mean, it would be interesting if that kind of range extension could be applied to NFC as well. Because imagine just going to a coffee shop, you know, setting a briefcase down that has a NFC theft device in it down. And, you know, if you're next to the line, you know, going to the cash registers or whatever, you could just, like... <laughs> steal like four or five people's uh uh tokens at once or whatever for nfc like that'd be that'd be quite crazy i mean yeah, i, don't know and if I it's mean possible, i could but... 
Like, I mean, it sounds like that would be possible now, even. I don't know for sure. Like I said, I'm not... I'm pretty sure that would be doable with RFID. I'm yeah. not exactly sure what the differences are between that and NFC to actually make a definitive claim. Yeah. Yeah, that, that might be something interesting to talk about if we can find some information about that on the next episode. Maybe during the week we can try to... Or if something just gets something published here. about or, doing yeah. something like that. Yeah, that too. Yeah. So we'll talk about Docker. So this was pretty recent. Uh, literally yeah, just this happened is a Thursday, maybe. Yeah. There are... Uh, I have questions about this. You have questions about it? Okay. I have questions. So... Docker so, Hub was compromised. 190,000 accounts, uh, GitHub tokens, Bitbucket tokens, basically the access tokens, really similar to the CI stuff uh, yeah. in terms of what was being leaked there. Uh, their statement on Thursday, April 25th, 2019, we discovered unauthorized access to a single Docker Hub database storing a subset of non-financial user data. Upon discovery, we acted quickly to intervene and secure the site. Now, I post, like, I found out about this super early Friday morning when they were sending emails out to people. But yet it took them until Sunday to actually put this notification up. Like this page up? Yeah, this page was up on Sunday. They were sending emails out about it, though, by Friday. And there's just okay. so many kind of weaselly things being said in here. Okay, that, so can you point something out that you... Well, I'll start off by saying, if you remember when we talked about Microsoft, when there's the Hotmail thing, um, uh, and there just wasn't just a lot of information. Do you remember when we were talking about Microsoft the one week? Okay, yeah. Um, And I kind of mentioned that, you know, like, I'm happy to see an announcement which there's more information. And I kind of feel the same way with this. There's just... They don't have much of an admission of what happened. Uh, so, since I mentioned the weasel things, uh, a subset of non-financial user data. They're not being clear about what was taken. They're just saying it's not financial. Well, it does say data includes username. And it does pass. say it includes that, but it doesn't say what information's there. So, I think there's more that they're just not saying, and they're choosing to phrase it this way. It's not financial information. It includes usernames and hash passwords. And then, of course, saying it's a less than 5% of hub users. You know, they're downplaying the number of users. Oh. Yeah, 190,000 looks like a big number, so they have yeah, to put so that it's... less than 5% to, you know, mitigate that, and then I guess. The other thing is, it's, uh, they mentioned it's a brief period of unauthorized access. How long is the uh, brief yeah, period? Brief. When was the brief period? Because they tell you to go and check your logs to see if any unauthorized actions happen. Do I look like, when did this happen? Was it on Thursday only? Did this happen on Wednesday and they noticed it on Thursday? Did this happen weeks ago or months ago? Oh, uh, yeah, How long was big. this brief period? There's so much, like, there's so much information and, that they could give. I mean, there. I understand sometimes when they just don't have the information. Well, but, I was going to play a bit of devil's advocate and say maybe they don't know exactly when the compromise happened, like, took place. But they don't uh, but... provide what they do know either. Just a brief period. If they don't know how long, then a brief period isn't the right thing to say. They should say an unknown period. Yeah, like yeah. Uh, we detected they had access on this day. 
in an unknown period before, but saying a brief period, is that five minutes or five days, five hours? You just don't know. Like there's so much information that seems like they've just phrased things just right so they don't have to reveal it. And I feel like, you know, in the coming weeks, we might find out more about this and find out that's a lot worse than they're making it out to be right now. Purely speculation. Mm-hmm. But I just, I don't like the way this reads and the fact that it took them, you know, two days to get this type of vague message out when they had already taken action to email people, to reset, to unlink accounts, to reset passwords uh, on Friday. Like that, yeah. something doesn't add up in the time frame for this. And there's also, I just noticed they have kind of a contradictory statement here. They say, for all DocHub users, there's no action required to preserve your security. But then it says a password link was sent to anyone who was potentially exposed and users who have auto builds should uh, unlinked will need to relink those repositories. Yeah, so, so they basically no they've already taken, well, they've already taken the action to preserve their security by resetting passwords and unlinking accounts. Um, so they, they don't have, have to, to take the passwords because they say there's a password reset link. So you can't log in until you do that, though. One of the other okay. things here okay. is actually saying, why can't I log in? And who's okay. asking these frequently asked questions before they announced? <laughs> what will be frequently asked questions? Yeah, I guess. Potential, potential uh, QFA. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's... Uh... Yeah, it's just vague. And like you said, it could be just because, you know, they just they want to downplay it. I mean, maybe uh, this is better. It's just it seems so suspicious how they've been so vague about this. I just expect better for tech company. Plain and simple. That's that and that's fair, I think, to expect of them. Um and yeah, like this is probably the worst part is the storing a subset of non-financial user data. It's just like and just be clear about what was taken or what was yeah. in that database. Yeah. Uh, although one thing they do put here too is we're enhancing our overall security policy and... Because uh, that's really meaningful. <laughs> we are enhancing, you know, enhance, just like a CSI. You enhance. See the image. Yeah, gotta enhance it. Enhance the image. I mean, like, uh, so I just, I expect better from a tech company. I'm glad they're announcing it. I think it's required now that they actually put out the announcement, like legally required. So, I like, I just I expect that more story. now. Yeah, that's that's yeah, that's totally fair. Uh, that being said, I you know I don't really I haven't really used Docker Hub. I mean, uh, I've used images from Docker Hub. I don't use Docker Hub myself. Like, I don't publish anything or have any builds yeah. that go out to it. Yeah. So, moving on to another compromise, we have the uh, e-gobbler. E-gobbler. Beautiful what a, what a name. name. Yeah. I know, it's, it's like... At least this time, they like gave us information it. on why it was named that way. Yeah. Which is because of the huge volumes of hits their campaigns generate, gobbler definition, a person who eats greedily and noisily. Yeah, you know, Because they're like very loud campaigns. No <laughs> well, we just don't know where Fruity Armor came from. Yeah. And uh, if anyone's wondering, uh did actually talk with Anti, and he basically said that it's up to the companies just to name them however they want. Some have a process, some don't. 
I was kind of hoping there'd be a kind of standard process, but unfortunately, we just end up with names like E-Gobbler, which maybe that is kind of fortunate, actually. Yeah. Uh, so speaking about this, apparently, like, we're talking about how noisy it is. Um, that is, um, what, 500 million sessions exposed to it in six days, I think is what they said. Yeah, I'm I'm going to go to that graph because it was very, yeah, this one right here. It's a bit hard to see the numbers. Oh, look at that. You can click on it. Neat. I didn't know she could do that before. <laughs> okay, there we go. So now you can see the numbers a bit better. Um, so yeah, it hit nearly 500,000 impressions on uh, the uh, 0409. Yeah, so the 9th of April. Uh, it almost hit 500,000 blocked impressions uh, in the US at least. Uh, you know, it has some of the other countries, but the U.S. Yeah, it looks like, like it's targeted focus. to the U.S. Yeah. Um, um, I mean, this was kind of... So they use session hijacking in a really weird way. I mean, I think this is just kind of... Because um, they talk about user sessions being exposed, and what they're talking about, when they talk about a session being hijacked, like, they don't mean stealing the session cookie. Like, I'd normally, if I talk about session hijacking, I talk about a session cookie being stolen so that somebody can perform actions as them. What this is talking about is when the page is able to redirect you to another page. So, you know, those ads that will redirect you and, like, take you to another page without you actually interacting? That's what they're calling yeah. session hijacking. It's hijacking the browser session. Yeah, and what's really annoying is a lot of those redirects, they'll like they'll do some sort of tricks to disable the back button so you can't or the they'll mess with the page history so that if you hit back it just takes you to different ads or whatever. Yeah. Oh, so God, what's interesting with this so one though is that it is um so with iframes, usually ads are kind of served by putting an iframe in there so the ad can do what it wants and just got a sandbox there. But there's actually these um sandbox attribute that can be put on if you pause right there actually and these are some yeah. other attributes that can be used to bypass the sandbox but that will actually sandbox the iframe and it'll do things like uh block form submissions even if the iframe is of from the same domain it'll be treated as a unique origin or like a uh won't be the same origin so it can't access like the domain it'll block you can block script execution API, like local storage access and stuff. Um, can't uh, have links in other browser contexts, so like opening a new window, opening a new tab, a bunch of things like that that will sandbox it. And what's interesting about this e-gobbler is their technique for getting around uh, the iframe sandboxing, you know, would work even if that iframe was sandboxed. The normal, uh, by, or sorry, the normal protections that would be in place by like Google or like a reputable ad service uh, wouldn't be able to block their attack, which uses kind of a bug in Chrome to do that session hijacking. Yeah, so I thought that was interesting. It used a Chrome zero day to uh, like uh, circumvent the pop-up blocking. Yeah, um, used um, took advantage of something in the user activated pop-up detection, except it doesn't require any user uh, interaction. Yeah, so that kind of reminds me... Uh, I, I don't think it's exactly the same thing, but it reminds me of another attack I've heard of before called like a pop under. So it'll yeah, like that would be up, different. Like, yeah, very, very different, different. But it's like the same, like it's 
Well, you know, so they haven't released the details about they're planning another post at some point uh, going into the details, but they haven't actually re released any information about how this circumvents like the anti-redirect thing, how it violates same origin policy and all of that. They haven't released that information yet, just that it does do that. Yeah, I heard they're planning on showing a POC soon. Um, but it it's what I think is uh, cool about it is it's not like your typical, like typically when you hear about a Chrome vulnerability or anything, it's, you know, memory corruption, code execution, that kind of thing. Um, I was I expecting the, that when I started reading this. I, I was too. Uh, I think those kind of attacks, like, you know, bypassing policies and stuff is, uh, it's not as flashy as code execution. So I don't think it gets uh, as much recognition, I guess. Oh, no, I still see them posted, like, you know, they'll get posted on Hacker News and, uh, like, our NetSec and stuff. You'll still see uh, these bypasses in there, too. Uh, yeah. But you've already stated you don't like web security, so you just don't pay attention to it. Well, I... <laughs> Face well, it, I mean, you, you don't. Browser. You don't seem to pay attention to that stuff. Well, it's more browser, though, right, than, than like, you know um well usually these do have a bit of a web aspect to them like it's appsec yeah yeah i mean like you said i am more of a binary person so of course with me with browsers i am more interested in those bugs that get code execution not bypass not just simply bypassing policies um but i i still do think those are interesting and those are maybe something i want to look into a bit more uh just because you know i think they're in a, in a way, they're a bit more clever because I feel like they're they take different. place at a different level of kind of the mental stack. Yeah, exactly. Um, and that's in gen that's generally true of appsec. Uh, with binary stuff, like there's you need to really understand the deep technical details of what's going on, and then you abuse that a bit. But it's very I kind of want to say linear when it comes to the binary exploits. Whereas with a lot of the AppSec stuff, you're dealing at a higher level. You're taking advantage of properly working functionality in ways that wasn't expected. Yeah. Yeah, so that's what I thought was, was neat about this uh, Zero Day. Looks uh, like so we've got Anti joining us. You actually joined at like a perfect time because we're talking about a mal malvertising campaign right now. So oh, man, <laughs> your timing is impeccable, so... Awesome. Congratulations. He's been watching the entire episode just waiting for us to get here. He's like, I don't want to talk about these other things, so let's just wait a bit. Everything yeah, else sounds too spooky, so I just waited at the right moment. <laughs> so actually, we were about to wrap up the story, but maybe you could uh, shine a bit of light on the... So have you heard much about the e-gobbler campaign? No. So uh, fill me in here. What's What are the deets? Um, e-gobbler? Is that what they really named it? <laughs> <laughs> so at least they gave a reason for it too. they did give a uh, reason yeah so this so the reason they called it e-gobbler was it did hit a lot of impressions in the u.s almost five hundred thousand. um and it was loud yeah not very stealthy yeah and um so basically what was the interesting part of it anti was it basically used to chrome zero day to bypass uh, pop-up blocking policies in the browser mm -hmm. Uh, to do like to hijack the browser to do like the redirect uh, page redirects and stuff like that. Okay, so I mean, so the weird part is they had a zero day, right? 
now well we don't have a lot of information over what exactly this zero day look like um you know the nice what's that sorry you're I don't know. Yeah, I'm not you sure if you're gonna get broke uh, up. No, you you cut out for a second. So we, okay, well it was me and maybe. Um, okay. <laughs> whatever works. Uh, so what I'm trying to look at here is, you know, I always hate when it's through a company's website just because I always get a little distrustful, you know. Um, but uh, you know, like most advertising campaigns, don't leverage zero days to my knowledge. Um, and if they do, it's like we've talked about before. Like I don't often see Chrome targeted. Um. Like, well, so, to be clear here, uh, just to fill you on the details, um, this isn't a Chrome Zero Day that gets remote code execution. This is a no, Chrome no. Zero Day to, like, bypass the same origin policy, to bypass the uh, no redirecting the page from, like, your sandboxed iframe. Um, that's that's still pretty, that's still a pretty good technique when you're looking at malvertising, right? Yeah, sure, um, it's just, it's it is different from kind of what we normally would talk about it when it comes down to yeah yeah if it, uh, i mean if it was remote code execution i mean they'd be in the big money dude they don't even need to be a criminal about it just go to google or something right or should do put that <laughs> in an exploit kit i'm pretty sure they could find a lot more success i'm just surprised how many people did you say it targeted successfully uh, it hit over 500,000 impressions on one day. So I'll, I'll bring it up again. There's yeah, so they use the number here. 500. I read this as 500 million, but 500 mm. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, 500 million, that'd be pretty incredible. <laughs> yeah, so that's the uh, one e-gobbler blocked impressions. So that's just based on, uh, they must offer something that gave them insight to this, I'm guessing, right? Do they, they offer some type of endpoint protection or some nonsense? Uh, Confiant. I'm not sure. I, I don't know too much about the company. I I haven't looked too much into. Uh, I I think that's the company, right? Yeah. yeah to be clear, it was 500 million. Uh, total. 500. Wow. Oh, that's total. Deep. Okay. Okay. So it wasn't. Yeah. Okay. But I, that is more crazy than I thought, though. I didn't. I didn't realize. 500 it. million blocked requests. Is that? See, like the hard part is like these stats are always kind of fucking stupid, because of the fact that like. Yeah, 500 million user sessions. That's insane. I that really, is estimated, though. Like, that's not an exact figure or anything. So even if you're like 400 million, oops, we oops to 100 million. Like, that's massive. Like, and I'm. Yeah, which is why they got the name, the e gobbler, because they were loud and generated a lot of hits. That's very fascinating. I'll have to read up more on this because, yeah, I would love to see better stats on it as opposed to just we estimate that this many user sessions and so on. You know, like, um, you know, it's hard to know what those those mean. You know, how are they handling the sessions? Is it like constantly refreshing sessions so that, you know, 100,000 users turned into 500 million because of improper session management or whatever it is, you know, like stats are always kind of weird like that. But this is interesting. It is interesting and shout out to uh, the e-gobbler folks for figuring out that little Chrome, <laughs> Chrome trippery, folks. right? You know, yeah. <laughs> that that's, yeah. that's an interesting trick, I'd say. Yeah, it would be nice if they provided a little bit more information on how they collected those statistics. Uh, maybe I'm missing something in the article that mentions that, but I don't think there is anything. No, that's... it's definitely light on details. Yeah. So. Yes, that's and it just shows different domains and how many. I mean, yeah, it's just it's too. And this is a big problem in thread intel because you obviously want to show that you have the big balls. You know, is look <laughs> at what we got, and no one else can tell you shit because only we found it. So. It sucks, you know, but it's it's an interesting story. I, I hope they put out more information once it's fully kind of triaged and shit. 
Yeah, so I think just before you joined, uh, we they did state that they would be releasing a POC eventually on how the uh, Chrome uh, pop-up block uh, bypass worked. Uh, they don't, so they don't have any technical details out right now, probably because they're, you know, it's probably in the patch uh, phase or whatever. But uh, right. yeah, they're they're probably going to put out some information about that. So maybe when they, you know, maybe when they put out that, they also put out a little bit more information. Uh, uh, more information about the ad campaign itself. No, awesome. I'd love to take a look at it once we'll have to redo it and uh, go off of the, the real information, not this blog post. Yeah, well, maybe if they release more <laughs> technical information. Man, we're, we're the yeah. Senate club. It's garbage. They didn't give me the raw JSON data. I don't want it. Don't want it. <laughs> yeah. So, um, I, yeah, I guess we can we, we sum that up. So we can, we can go to the security researchers uh, creating a backdoor uh, inspired by the NSA malware. I think it was Double Pulsar that it was inspired by. Yeah, that's the one that kind of uh, gave the inspiration. And yeah, what's kind of stealthy about this one is it doesn't bind to any sockets, doesn't open any ports. As I say, there doesn't hook into any existing functions. Instead, it uh, uses an undocumented API in the srvnet.sys process, and it'll register itself to handle uh, incoming server message block messages. Um, so in that way, it's able to listen on that port, but it's listening on something that's already been bound. Um, like something else is already legitimately listening for this, and it's just registered itself as a handle. It's completely legitimate. And the only way you're really detecting this by going and looking exactly for that. Like it's not being picked up by mo by any antivirus at this point, as far as I'm aware. The downside is this is kernel land. Oh, yeah, it needs to be signed. So the example here obviously is unsigned. It's not weaponized. Now, can uh, an APT get around that? Of course they can. Of course, they'll be able to get away <laughs> to sign it. But what's been released isn't signed. It's not ready to go like the double pulsar was. It's just inspired by that sort of backdoor. That's not yeah. bad. That's not so, bad. I kind of like that. Go ahead. Yeah, so I was just going to say it's, you know, it's not really malicious. It's not weaponized, uh, is what I gathered. Um, but what I thought was was an interesting point of it was that there's always been a debate about, you know, the NSA leaked malware, like how dangerous that was uh, in terms of inspiring other attacks that are stealth as stealthy or as, like, close to nation state level as those, uh, as that malware was. Um, now, in this case, you know, it's not weaponized. Like you said, you can't really run unsigned kernel code anymore in modern Windows versions. Um, well, not without explicitly going and disabling it, which most of your users aren't just going to, oh, yeah, sure. Let me, oh, I'm installing a new Candyland. Let me just disable uh, signature enforcement. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, it even says here it's mo mostly an academic exploration. Um, but I think it does you know, lend some credence into that discussion that, like, these are some things that we are going to need to watch out for, especially from nation-state level attacks, is using these kinds of things. Because like you said, nation-states will have that access to uh, potentially get a signing certificate to get this code into kernel. So that's probably the main, like, thing that interested me about this article was that connection to the like the inspiration from the nsa malware yeah and i just want to add like i think 
this is the way to go about some of that research. Um, releasing something that kind of illustrates it, but can't just be taken by your script kiddies. I mean, I'm not super worried about giving you techniques to like the NSA or to the government, uh, because they're going to come up with stuff anyhow. I'm not too worried yeah. about that. But opening it up so now more people are kind of having their eyes open to these types of attacks and having researchers look at this and release it in a way that completely explains it. It's not just like hiding details, but that, so that it can't really be weaponized too readily. Like I said, APTs absolutely are going to be able to weaponize this. Like There, there are ways around that, but, you know, your average script kitty, not so much. Like, I'm not going to expect this to be in, like, I I don't know. What's a popular rat nowadays? Dark Comet. <laughs> Is Dark Comet still used? I, I, don't, don't, I don't know, actually. Like, legit? Probably... Andy, what, what's a common, like, script kitty just, like, having some rat? I mean, a, a common one I'd say is Azeroth is the one. Oh, but okay, I mean, yeah. People still, people still modify Dark Comet and all that stupid shit. Yeah, I mean, I've been surprised by kind of the lasting of Dark Comet, especially because the author kind of disowned it. But um, I mean, yeah, like Dark Comet's still around and stuff. Uh, I don't think Brutus is still used. There's like what sub seven, go way yeah, back. I, mean, I, I think they still. You know, it's funny is every time I think I'm like, there's no way people still use this shit. People still use these things sometimes, man, because it's so easy. Like it's so well documented, you know, like even tools from like 2007, like it's been modified with so much functionality, like uh, a lot of account takeover tools like Century MBA shit's been around for, since early 2000s, you know, and people are still modifying and re-releasing it. So, I mean, but it, in regards to this, you know what I mean? Like I don't see anyone, any, even a rat developer having the technical know-how to go and, and weaponize this properly. You know yeah, what I mean? That that's the thing. Like, this can't just be readily weaponized, but it can be shared as research. And I think that's awesome. Yeah, no, this is this is actually, I think, a good effort by the researcher because not to point names or anything like that, but there are a lot of people that release shit like, oh, but see, I'm doing it because I'm a good guy. But you're like, dude, you just released like full exploits that haven't been patched yet. You know, like, yeah. what are you doing, bro? <laughs> yeah, like in this case, that he does release source, but like because it can't be weaponized, it's useful to it, show anyone, the issue. Yeah, well, and anyone that can weaponize it, dude, already probably has plenty more than just this at their disposal that they're not probably all that concerned, or they've already known about it for some time. You know what I mean? Yeah, like I'm just pulling up the source here on. Or a screen share, just, you know, it's all just right there for you to see what it's doing. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I don't want to go too deep down this rabbit hole. but I No, I don't want to start about... talking about the code. Well, oh, no, not the code. I was going to talk a bit more about, like, the, you know, responsible disclosure stuff. I don't yeah. want to go too deep down that rabbit hole, but <laughs> I remember talking in the past with you about it, and you were saying you hate, uh, or not that you hate, but you're not a fan of public disclosure right like at least Correct. Not. i'm not a fan of public disclosure simply because i'm not a fan of giving script kitties those easy to use tools just to take it yeah so this style of disclosure is a nice middle ground to be able to you know give those technical details for those people like us who are interested in it uh but can't be weaponized and uh or, well can only be weaponized by people <laughs> that actually that aren't script kitties yeah, i mean i know the whole term script kitty like, script kitty is kind of a loaded term, I know. 
I mean, I don't, I don't go around calling people script kiddies a lot, but it, like in this context, I'm just referring to that type of person. Yeah. Yeah, the person who just uses tools to do bad stuff and doesn't care about how they work. <clears throat> um, but yeah, I think that you know it's an it's an interesting read in terms of like how technical it is because, like you said, it's not a common thing, uh, especially you know considering it's you know yeah it's a it cool can't idea. Be weaponized. Yeah, it's a nice idea. Yeah, so time to get a bit political. <laughs> Yeah, let's start talking about the Mueller report. That's the only time I joined Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, yeah, I, I mean, have a lot to say in this. honestly, I, it really confirmed what I think most of us pretty much expected. You know, that yes, Russia has hacked government. Yes, Russia has um, compromised. You know, in this case, they mentioned specifically the Illinois State Board of Elections. Um, they have done some spear phishing campaigns against ex execs on voting machines. It sounds like the, so this thing doesn't say SQL injection. It talks about injecting malicious SQL though. So it sounds like some government websites were vulnerable to like SQL and they were able to inject malicious SQL uh, to get data back out. Pretty much sounds like SQL injection, but they don't call it that. I, I mean, I can't say I'm surprised. But it is really stupid. Honestly, such, like, who could be surprised though anymore? You know, and I mean, like, it was expected. Who? What? What was this? A local? Was this a county or a state? What was this one? Uh, so oh, it's talking about several things. This is just what the Mueller report apparently found. Uh, so it includes like the Florida, at least one county government in Florida, uh, was compromised. Uh, talks about spear phishing of company executives that make the voting machines, uh, the Illinois State Board of Elections, um, and several government websites. So they don't go into all the details about it, just U.S. state and local entities like the State Board of Elections and county websites. But I'm, I'm always curious how, you know, like these groups, like, I mean, dude, if you look at the level of like county voters and stuff like that, like, who do you think is looking and even at state, you know, like, they probably have like one IT guy share between like 200 different government employees. You know, like I can't imagine anyone's surprised that, you know, the SBOE was compromised probably by some old ass vulnerability, let's be honest. And, uh, you probably, know, yeah. it's sadly a lot of these like even state websites, you know, are just in terrible shape. No one's, no one's updating them. I, I mean, anecdotally, I've seen a lot of these, like a lot of the county ones, I thought that's what this was. A lot of the county websites, across uh the u.s are just terrible you know um and not even in a vulnerable but just a uh a general approach at you know securing and and usability i can't imagine this hasn't happened many times before it's just people are starting to figure it out yeah like, no, you know? i think to be fair here like it's not just the u.s like obviously we're talking about the u.s because this is related to that Mueller report which is specifically about um election tampering like in the 2016 election but I remember, like, I've run into so many kids that, like, their first big hack is some random government website. Like, not necessarily U.S. government, just some random, like, you know, GovCo UK or, like, Gov yeah. North Korea or something. Like, just random <laughs> government websites because just on a whole, the governments aren't super well funded to start doing that. Unless you start looking at probably NSA, CIA. Like, the mm -hmm. really, some have big funding. But in general, just 
there just isn't a lot of time and money to be put into the security uh, for governments in general. Yeah, and I mean, I, I was just going to touch on that. I mean, maybe not SQL injection, but you can find a lot of XSS just searching Google dorks on government domains. Like, that's how easy it is to find, like, some, you know, some issues. So. Oh, for sure. And like Andy said, probably even just old issues, like un unpatched, running an old WordPress or something. I don't know, but. I mean, look yeah. at, if you go to HackerOne, Department of Defense has their program, right? I mean, I, they, they hide basically as many statistics as they can from you, but they, uh, they show that they think 830 hackers, right? Um, and it's just hackerone.com slash department D-E-P-T of defense, right? Like, yeah. what I think is interesting is this is like, this is the top dog in the U.S. Uh, government, as far as I'm concerned, right? You know, the Department of Defense. We're talking at least, that's just at least 800 vulnerabilities, I assume, right? if there's 830 separate hackers and some could have reported multiple. So, you know, at least 800 in the department of defense. So how, how easy do you think it is to find way more across the entire U S you know, different governments and stuff like that, not just the department of defense. So that's where like, I kind of, I'm not even remotely surprised that they won't, I'm actually more surprised. We didn't see it was rampant in the Mueller, Mueller report, you know, where it's just like everything they're seeing is like, Jesus, everything's getting hacked. You know what, what I, mean? I was surprised by was actually just the fact they're using Word document Trojans in their spear phishing campaign. Like, I mean, I get that that's common. It just, I don't know. It just seems so weird that people are still falling for that. Yeah. Like, especially Word, not PDF or anything, just straight up Word document. Now, yeah. I, I, I remember reading a little bit about this story last week. Um there what was what was attacked with the sql injection was there one spe system specifically because i feel like i remember hearing something about a voting system being uh vulnerable to sql injection but i'm like i don't so know so i'm not sure about that. that um in this thing they do talk about them trying to compromise the voting system like executives the witch story uh they do talk about trying to uh compromise the voting system like the manufacturer the executives of the company through the sphere fishing oh, okay they do okay. talk about that in this report uh this thing seems to talk like it just says like they ran the sql malicious sql code on the website then ran commands on the underlying database to extract information like it sounds like they're just dumping a database but it's a website of state and local election offices i don't yeah, think I... this one actually talks about um sql injection on the voting machines themselves but i know we were talking about voting machine vulnerabilities uh, a couple weeks ago i think yeah um i wish they were a bit more specific about what kind of data was exfilled they don't really get any like it's, it's very it's again very vague they don't really say what was only they would dump the information for us i know they should just publish the dumps <laughs> hey, Russia, if you're listening <laughs> <laughs> i mean like you know obviously there's probably legal reasons and and you know confidentiality and stuff there are reasons yeah. that they can't get too specific but you know at least like at a high level overview would be nice of what kind of data was taken especially from a voting office like it would be nice to see you know were votes uh vote tally specifically bound and if that's the case then so i'm you know, not well, sure but i think public, there's so i think there's still an investigation going on related to some of this because the mueller Probably. report is specifically yeah. 
about Trump's relation with both collusion and uh, um, and the elections. Um, so I think there's like another investigation going on that's going more just like into Russia and like they're tampering with the election. It's not going into like it's not focused on Trump's relation to any of that. So I think that's still ongoing, and perhaps once that is done, we might have more information, or maybe not. Yeah, I mean, not to get too political, but I, I mean, I think Trump was pretty much, you know, they they said there's no more indictments coming, so I don't think that there is a proven connection between Trump and and. Well, so that's what the Mueller Russia report case, but... was, and yeah, that's what the conclusion was, like that. Um, there wasn't like Trump didn't hire Russia to help him win. The election is yeah. the gist of it, but Russia still did it in the in the benefit of their own self interest, and yeah. basically this is a, this article. So talks I think about there's more going how they did it into looking at that. This is just kind of what overlapped with that investigation. Is it my understanding? Yeah. Oh no, Anti, you're you're the American here. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I mean, what what's what is the the full question that you're you're passing my way? Um, is there more of an investigation going on into just what Russia's been doing in terms of the election? Or was so, the Mueller report it? So, like, it's kind of hard to say. From what I've understood, the Mueller report was kind of looked at for a long time as, like, the end-all, be-all of, like, collusion, this and that, right? Um, and, and it's really meant to, it was meant to be the thing that was kind of like the final blow to the Trump presidency. Now, with the report coming out and besides the fact that's heavily redacted so it's really not easy to necessarily paint a full picture there's kind of this back and forth that our our goal was to show that russia was influencing the election in multiple ways if we're looking at this thing right here like i i gotta be honest with you sometimes i feel like people blow smoke so much smoke around shit that if you kind of read what's going on I'm not saying that we shouldn't be worried that this data was compromised, but they talk about the information about U.S. voters. So that could be as simple as my name is Anti. I voted, you know, Republican for two years or whatever the fuck, right? Like, and it sounds very scary. I know that there's political profiling and you can use that for further targeting, but like, there, I, I think that a lot of these sway the opinion in the way that most Americans, when they think of the election was hacked, they think of it like Russia is directly hacking additional votes into your system. Like right? vote manipulation. Yeah. Like I, I think that's where this loss is kind of happening is it's not just that, yes, they're taking information about voters and probably carrying out like uh, influence campaigns is really what you're seeing a lot of, right? They know who's what voting this and that, right? And so they target you with campaigns and meme pages against you know Hillary or Trump or whatever, right? Um, so I think that's really honestly what a lot of people are seeing, but they're taking it as like shit like this is they've hacked these machines and now they're giving themselves extra votes for the candidate they want, which to my knowledge is not what's happening here. And by the way, I did want to point out, if you looked at it, uh, I, I saw this one on roll call, the same article is basically saying that the Volusia, whatever Volusia County was affected by the GRU attack. Like someone in, in the local county fell victim to these spear phishing. So I'm genuinely always curious who these victim are, uh, victims are because it's like, again, if you're a little county employee, are you going to have half a clue how to deal with a, a nation-state apparatus that's like, here, open this Word document that won't do anything bad. 
We absolutely. <laughs> you know, like I, I always feel genuinely bad for people who open this shit and they're like, fuck, how was I supposed to know, dude? I just check the water in this place. I don't do anything else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I can definitely get that feeling for them because I mean, especially a lot of them probably aren't that tech literate either. Like I said, just Most check the water. Maybe that's a bit of an exaggeration, but... <laughs> Dude, I mean, you'd be amazed how many people have emails and have unknown access to things because they're just on a network. Yeah. You know what I mean? They don't even realize what they have access to because they're just someone that comes in and organizes the papers, you know? And then, boom, someone exploits them. like, oh, shit, I'm on the network now. You know, like, that's... That's the hard part. But to kind of reiterate your point, I don't think most Americans, they were kind of looking for the Mueller report to be the smoking gun. And I don't think it's both sides are already so entrenched in their own beliefs. I don't think it really budged much realistically. Well, so my question was more um, about whether or not there's still more investigations ongoing specifically into just Russia's interference. Well, your question was wrong. No, um <laughs> <laughs> as for the investigation i don't think so i mean that was the conclusion of the report it okay see i thought that the Mueller report was specifically on it, trump it, it, in relation to that and that uh um an investigation may have been spun out of the Mueller investigation now into the russia um i bet you there's a lot more going on in the background it's just not talked about right yeah, so, fair enough I, I mean it's you know this I, is getting a little bit political it's no, no, no. That's I, I would just say that there's probably more going on in the background that people don't really know about. But the Mueller report was kind of seen as this golden light. You know, Trump is still under investigation in New York, not for collusion, but for tax evasion. So for anyone, you know, doing little chalk lines on their sidewalk or something, there's another one to look out for. Now, yeah, here's the I question. Mean, is Russia trying to get Trump to open a Word document? Is, is Russia... Is he Sorry, what? can you repeat that for a second? Is Russia spearfishing Trump? <laughs> you don't have to spearfish someone who texts you. I'm just kidding. I mean, uh, yeah, I was just going to say, you know, I'm obviously an outsider and I, I didn't follow the Mueller report too much because it's just a lot of political bullshit. But I mean, you know, my like uh, overall thought on it was that it was a bunch of investigations that were all summed up into one report, like under like that was the umbrella for a bunch of smaller yeah, okay. investigations. You know, what, um, I, I think I, we can kind of move on from. Yeah, I just wanted to say that that was like mm -hmm. how I thought it of it. I, maybe I'm wrong, but. Uh, uh, fair it, enough. Essentially, essentially, it was yeah investigations, and they were uh, all brought together by Mueller, our boy Mueller, yeah. or no one's boy Mueller. Whoever doesn't assassinate me is what I believe. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. So, so uh, moving on from there, though, <laughs> uh, we've got this. Uh, this is kind of going to be our last topic here: using power anomalies to detect malware, specifically in embedded systems. To be fair, it's not just like you're not going to re replace your antivirus with. A power monitoring system but i think this is kind of cool because it makes sense uh malware you know on an embedded system when it's going to try and attack like you know rohammer it's going to use more power there's going to be a power spike so instead of trying to detect that one well, of those attacks are ongoing which requires adding more code in there just becoming less efficient look at the power usage and determine if there's something going on that way um so that's basically what this is about it's and I mean, it's pretty much exactly what's on the title. The full paper isn't being released until next week, late next week, I think. Um, okay. No, yeah, yeah, sorry. 
uh, early, like on the 6th or 7th, I think, is when the... Yeah, May 6th to the 10th. 6th or yeah. 10th, there we go, is when the actual uh, paper will be released. But the principle here is, I think, pretty obvious. You look for those power spikes, those power anomalies, because your embedded systems are generally going to be pretty either consistent or at the very least pretty predictable in how much power is being used. So, okay, like so the... I was going to say, would there be a potential yeah. for a bunch of false positives there? But I think uh, maybe not false positives, but I can be fooled, which they did find. Like, if it were to reduce its usage in order to have like a more normal power usage, but that also requires slowing down everything. They like said it would have to slow down by like sixty to ninety percent or something. Like, oh, there we go, thirty-six to seven. Uh, X lower bandwidth is what it was. So like a very significant slowdown in order to not uh, trigger any sort of power spike. Um, it sounds like they used kind of looked at the Rowhammer attack as their example uh, for a lot of these. Um, so that's where I think they're getting the 36 to 7 uh, X lower usage. But I mean, the interesting thing is this is an out of band detection mechanism. You know, you have, you're getting it from the battery, you know, presumably, you know, chip in the battery reporting power usage. Uh, so it so, can be fooled by reducing the power usage, but, uh, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, without getting into like too many technical details, can you just go into like a little bit of a high level overview of the Rowhammer stuff? Because that is a bit older. I'm, I'm a bit fuzzy on what exactly those attacks entailed. Um... A basic idea is it just keeps trying to mess with data that is physically like around the actual data that you want to modify and eventually doing that will actually flip bits in the rows that are physically like next to oh uh, so yeah like a glitch attack kind of thing yeah, uh, yeah okay. so like by flipping the bits that are really close to it eventually you'll flip the bit like, just as a side effect, it'll flip the bit next to it. Yeah, okay. Um, so yeah, so you... Yeah, I mean, so you do that, like, a ton of times per second. It's not like you just flip that once or twice and you get it. Uh, but that's yeah. kind of the gist of Rowhammer. So it's basically just trying... Yeah, it's trying to detect, you know, using the power to glitch, to cause glitches and... Well, it's, it would detect how you, you start power. using more power when you do something like that. Because yeah. you're running more commands. Uh, yeah. Because the power isn't causing the glitch. Yeah. Uh, a quick a quick thing I have for you, Andy, before we wrap this up is, uh, do you think that this will be a, a useful technique in terms of preventing nation-state attacks? Because I'm just thinking, I remember, you know, Stuxnet uh, with the attack against uh, uh, Natanz. Uh, do you think, like, this technique could be used to help prevent situations like that? Or like not not a, not that specific situation, but just like you know those kinds of nation state level attacks. Oh man, it's gonna stop nation states right away. We're never gonna have cybercrime <laughs> again, dude. Like we are set. I mean, uh, I already good. I said like right at the beginning there, it can be fooled just by reducing your speed, just by not using yeah. that power. But yeah, I mean, see, that's just uh, I'm telling you, man, it's too good. No, it it's I think like if you scroll down, what's funny. But I noticed what I was reading. If you scroll down a bit, um, keep going, keep going, keep going a little bit. Okay, stop. So I was laughing. Oh, what? Okay. Yeah, right there is good. It was right like, oh, they're presenting it at uh, <laughs> they're presenting it in Tyson's Corner, Virginia, which is like 
notoriously like the place where a, a lot of feds are and contractors and shit right <laughs> okay so i was cracking up too because i'm like wow that's so weird why would why would they focus on this that's interesting and then i see oh the stone of support from lockheed martin who, <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah. so i was like this is fascinating so i mean it doesn't really add much but i thought it was hilarious because i was like this totally screams like something that like isn't going to be normally used in a even in an enterprise that's worth billions of dollars, it's just not practical for your little sock analyst to be like, yeah, it spiked up to 15% power. Like, what the fuck? You know, like that doesn't work well enough. But I do think that this could be helpful for when you are talking like uh, an actual government entity that has something like you were mentioning Stuxnet that has a very predictable output, right? I, I don't know enough. I don't I don't work with power and shit like that to know enough, but <laughs> I, I do envision that most times these things are uh, essentially they're at a, a, a very known percentage because it's it has to be that way. Otherwise, bad things happen. Right. Yeah. So, and that's again, what they say here is that the nature of these sorts of microarchitectural attacks like the Rohammer are difficult to detect. But, um, you know, we have a good idea of what the power consumption looks like when they're operating normally. And that's the key thing. These are embedded systems. This isn't like yeah. your server or something. This <laughs> is embedded. No, that makes even more sense. An embedded system's even easier to, to kind of get a baseline, right? Yeah. That, so, th no, I, I was ready to crap all over this, but I actually think it's pretty interesting. I'm surprised no one's really thought of it till now. I guess is what's weird to me. Or maybe this they did like, think about this like 20 years ago and they're just like, hey, we should maybe tell people about it now. So like let's come should, up with we, this uh, fake fake person to publish. I mean, it's totally possible, man. You know, like maybe it's just like, hey, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, here you go. Like, I don't know. It's I just thought it was interesting, but this is definitely something aimed at the U.S. government. They're presenting in like Virginia with Lockheed Martin, you know? I don't know. I love it though. It's It's pretty cool. I actually like this. Yeah, so yeah, you, were, I mean, you originally didn't, now you like it. Yeah. yeah, I mean, just based on the names, I was like, what the hell? I, I saw malware. <laughs> I saw malware, and I was like, hold on a second, man. You know, I was like, <laughs> I need malware and embedded systems. I was like, this is starting to feel like one of those papers that I read, and it's just like people throwing words around. They're like, you know, when the microsystems, when they sub-pulse, you're like, what the hell is this talking about? I have no clue. No, this this actually makes sense once you read into it a bit more. Um that's why I just I try to caution people when they hear like malware and this and that. I'm like, yeah, I mean, okay, but this this is a good way to kind of move forward against those very sophisticated. I don't want to say sophisticated attacks, just the lesser known and ones that aren't able to be monitored in a conventional way. Okay, yeah. So I think that sums that up, uh, and that that wraps up the podcast. So uh, one question for you though, Z, are you good for next week? Um, I, just I should sure. be. Okay. Okay. Yes, we'll so, find yeah. out next week. <laughs> yes, we'll find out next week. So, um, yeah. So that that sums up this episode. Uh, thanks for tuning in. So we will uh, probably see you next week for episode eight, because uh, uh, eventually Z will be going on a hike. So they're you know yeah, we'll, eventually we'll I'll disappear and this will just be a monologue with Andy. You know, <laughs> yeah, it'll just be just me Spectre talking. With, uh, yeah, oh. with Andy occasionally popping in. I'll just have uh, to stop scheduling on Mondays. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that more. You know, when it when it gets closer to that. Uh, but at least for now, you know, we sh we should be back again next week. So uh, we'll we'll keep you guys updated on that. And uh, yeah, so we will see you guys next week.